So welcome along to another episode of the Shona Project podcast with myself, Allison Curtis and Tammy Darcy. Hi, Tammy. Hey, Allison. How are you today? Good. Great. Now, this is a topic we've already decided that probably needs a part two and part three, but we wanted to talk this morning about healthy eating and how we can help our daughters in particular set up for healthy habits during their teenage years. And again, just as a reminder, I'm on one side of the teenage years with a 12-year-old and Tammy's on the other side with, is she 18 or 19 now? She'll be 19 in May. Yeah, so right. she's fully grown, fully formed adult now. And I think it's important, Alison, to say we're re-recording the intro to this one because we this is such a big topic. And when we when we originally recorded the introduction, I kind of went off on one about my own experience, um, you know, with body image and with confidence. And I think it's so tied into eating, but I just think we need to break it down a little bit more and do maybe episode two, episode three, episode four, episode 100 on this conversation, because today is really specific to concerning habits around eating and disordered eating specifically, which is a separate one. Exactly. And we, I suppose it goes back to us talking about our teenage years again. And something that's a common theme for me is I do feel that I grew up in a little bit of a bubble. And I feel grateful in that respect that I wasn't really super conscious of myself. And the 90s and the 80s was all about like baggy clothing. Now, obviously, there was images around how the ideal woman should look and how to achieve that look when I was growing up. But I was quite removed from that. And I think so much of that from our generation, my generation is the fact that we just we're not online and like we were out making forts and we were chasing you know animals and running around with boys and skateboarding to school and doing all that kind of stuff so i do forget how much of that has changed for me and for joan who now does have an online life it's monitored but she is seeing images at a more rapid pace than i would have yeah, I think with this one, with with eating, so much of it is down to education around what is healthy, because, you know, we didn't really talk about it to discuss it. We were just like vegetables are good and sugar is bad. That's all we knew. Um, yeah. And not like moderation or anything like that. But now I see these girls watching TikToks and there's all this, you know, fitspiration and stuff like that. And again, I think we assume that this is often the cause of disordered eating. Whereas in our chat, we're going to have with Harriet, we're going to learn so much more about the fact that a lot of disordered eating is actually a symptom of a bigger issue. And it's about control. And it's not always about how you look. Sometimes it's, it's a different thing. Completely. And I wanted to ask Harriet, I guess, most importantly, in this episode about red flags. So I have a situation whereby last year, um, this year at school, um, my daughter's not that interested in eating there, but she does have a good appetite outside of the school hours. But how concerned should I be about that? I know a lot of parents talk about the fact that their children are in a similar position because they feel like there's not enough time allocated for, you know, eating and then children are busy and and when you're busy, sometimes you go, oh, my God, I'm thirsty. I forgot. I haven't had a drink or, you know, I'm not eating. But I just want to talk to her about red flags. And I suppose really, Tammy, as well, about language that we should be using and how we approach the conversation, because sometimes you want to get to something, the source of something before you think that there is a problem so that it doesn't develop. Yeah, I think that was the big thing for me is how we how we talk about food at home. And if we are concerned, how we bring it up without 
making it more of a thing or making them feel that we're they're working against us as opposed to with us and mm-hmm. you know i think like across the board with every topic that we cover so much of it is going to be about our language and how we express any concern that we have or how we you know try and find solutions or and like i think we need to get support ourselves on these things like nobody teaches us how to do this um, yeah exactly so yeah. that's why i think this conversation with harriet like for me is a really really important one it is definitely and before we get her on i know that knowing that we were going to cover this as a topic has made me kind of revisit how i talk about food myself and what I reference it and try and get rid of this idea when I'm speaking to everyone in the family about good and bad food and more about it as nutritious, but also something to be enjoyed. Yeah, like food is fuel. That's the way I try and talk about it at home. You know, if we want to go and achieve these things, whether it's in sport or whether it's like being able to focus in school, that that you know, we need to fuel ourselves to be able to do that. And that's literally the only way that I talk about food and how important it is at home. Um, You know, I think we need to be the generation to change this narrative. And there's a lot of pressure on us, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. Well, we get Harriet on and see what she has to say. Let's do that. Perfect. So, hey, Harriet Parsons is with us. She's the Training and Development Manager for BodyWise. Welcome, Harriet. Thanks for coming. Thank you. So, myself and Alison were just having this whole conversation about, you know, our relationships with food and healthy eating. And I think we're that kind of circle of shame generation. And I think if you get to your 40s with this, like, really unhealthy attitude, it's really hard to unpick that. So I suppose what we're looking for now is how do we raise daughters that like, let's be the generation that stop that, that don't let it carry on. And just to be really cognizant about how we talk, not just to our girls, but in front of our girls about ourselves and all of that kind of thing. So we're hoping to get the answers from you uh, if possible. But would you start by just telling us a little bit about BodyWise and the amazing work that you do? Um, so BodyWise is the Eating Disorders Association of Ireland. So we provide support, services, information, education, training to people affected by eating disorders in Ireland. So that means people themselves who have an eating disorder and then also the people supporting that person. So often that's family um, and then kind of wider community as well. So we provide education in schools, around school talks and workshops around body image and, you know, developing kind of healthy, positive body image. Um, a big part of the work that I do is working alongside the public health services and the clinicians and kind of supporting the work that they do and providing training in different areas. So maybe, so for example, in hospitals with dietitians or in universities with um, people within maybe dietetics or food science, um, then in other kind of um, places where eating disorders might come up. So residential care homes sometimes, family centers, like the whole, anything, anywhere where it comes up, you'll find that. <laughs> and then we pop up there. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of, 
Yeah, it's kind of something that you don't really hear about in Ireland until you're dealing with it or your family is dealing with it. So like, how are we doing in Ireland at the moment with eating disorders? Has it been growing in the last few years? Are we getting better? And how do we compare with, you know, other countries when it comes to this issue? So um, I think the stats would say that there uh, there's around... 1,700 and something new cases per year. But those stats were kind of pre-COVID. So what we saw during COVID was a huge spike in people developing eating disorders. And that was felt across um, treatment services and certainly in our services as well. So the numbers have really increased. um, And since you know, since COVID, since that's all calmed down and everyone's back in their life, um, the numbers have leveled off a little bit, but not that much. And so I think what we're seeing is that the the, the COVID influence on mental health will, will be felt for a long time to come, really. Um, so generally, the numbers would be the kind would be the similar to other um, Western countries. Um, so I I. I mean, I think that they would estimate that there's around 200,000 people in Ireland who have an eating disorder. Um, And that seems like those numbers are very scary, actually. And when you say them like that, for sure, of course. Um, Harriet, before like we get into sort of what we should do if we are concerned about someone in our family or our circle or daughters, like, would you have advice on how to set them up with just even like having a healthy relationship with food before we're kind of even hitting the tween, teen years and tween years. I suppose like there's a bit of tension there with that idea because, um, you know, an eating disorder isn't just about food. So food is the way that an eating disorder manifests. But um, so I think that part of the prevention aspect is building resilience. And part of that resilience is absolutely having a healthy relationship to your body and to food. Um, so in in that in that regard, um, you know, advice would be around um, that all food is healthy, that all food is that not good, there's no good food and bad food, that all food needs to be allowed. Um, not to have kind of extreme ideas around food and eating. Try not to equate um, certain types of eating with certain feelings or certain behaviors. So they would say, don't use food as a reward, so so to speak, you know, that, um, or as a punishment, um, you know, that mm. it, it should be neutral, really. Um, you know, that a broccoli, piece of broccoli should be as interesting as, um, you know, an ice cream. Now, obviously, there's different food in ice cream. So, you know, physically, people are going to maybe have a reaction to it in a different way. But that's the idea that it's about teaching people to be able to listen to themselves, to understand their own hunger and their own body needs um, to be able to be comfortable in their own skin and not to um, kind of hold their feelings about themselves in their skin, in their own body. Um, so okay. all of those kind of ideas can help to build up a resilience in a person so that they might not turn to food and controlling their body as a way of coping. But when we think about what an eating disorder is, eating disorders aren't really about food. 
So that just happens to be the way that that person's distress is being expressed. So I don't, you know, I think that there are other things about a person that can make them vulnerable to developing an eating disorder. Not, It's not just about having a healthy relationship with food, if that makes sense. Okay. That's interesting because obviously sometimes an eating disorder is a response to a trauma or, you know, is, is like... Um, you know, a reaction to or like a way to get control in a situation where you don't have control. And there's many, many ways in which those things manifest themselves, not just in eating disorders, but in various types of self-harm, risky behavior, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but just just kind of coming back to the food, do you think that there is in circumstances or is it not an issue where daughters in particular, because we're talking about daughters today, just grow up in a home where there's constant talk about food or control around food and does that also impact their relationship with food and end up in this situation at times where maybe they have, you know, somebody making comments at home about their weight or they grow up with a parent who constantly kind of rewards themselves and punishes themselves with food and then they see that as being a level of control or are the two just not, not like in any way, shape or form related? No, I think that they are related. And I think that as we grow up in the house that we grow up, like in every house, food is very powerful and food is very symbolic. And food, um, like when you think about it, you know, if you have a baby, um, those kind of first weeks following the birth, you know, it's all about the sleep and it's all about the eating. So from the very beginning, food is an important part of um, how you build up a relationship with another human being. And food is also an expression of love um, and being cared for. So I think that food is never just food. Um, and absolutely within a house, the kind the culture in that house, the way people um treat food in the house, the kind of um implicit messages around food and eating are always really, really important. Um and absolutely can set a person up to have a negative relationship to food and their body. And then I suppose coupled with that, then you might have other kind of vulnerabilities. Like, so other kind of factors might be that the person has a tendency towards being anxious or they have a tendency towards black and white thinking or all or nothing thinking. And they might be very perfectionist or need to, you know, be good at anything that they try to do. And they might be a very sensitive person and be very sensitive both to their own feelings and then to other people's feelings. So it's really when you have all of these things kind of collide together that um, the person's relationship to how they feed themselves and how they feel about themselves can then and become problematic. Harriet, could I ask, um, just from the very starting point, I suppose, um, maybe not the starting point, but just signs that parents need to be aware of before the problem. I know that things will be going on for that individual who might develop disorder E before they even let their parents know about it, but just early warning signs that parents should be aware of. And then I suppose coupled with that, things that we should not be doing to make it worse? Um, So I think that one of the things to think about, 
So disordered eating is obviously part of an eating disorder. And that's the behavioral part. And so that's things like restricting food, um, not eating, overeating, binge eating, purging, overexercising, controlling, those kind of controlling behaviors. Um, and so if you think about it, I always think of disordered eating kind of on a on a spectrum or a continuum. So you have because everybody engages in disordered eating, none of us eat exactly the same all the time. And everyone has a has has a relationship with food. Um and how we feel affects how we feed ourselves. Like that's the same for everybody. Um, so if you think of disordered eating on a kind of continuum and you think of that kind of line, at one end you have normal disordered eating and at the other end you have eating disorder. And the question always is, is well, when does it, where is the tipping point? So where does somebody tip from kind of normal disordered eating into something that's an eating disorder? So what will that parent suddenly have a red flag about? What will they suddenly kind of sit up and go, hmm, that's, that's a bit you know, strange or that's not the way they used to be or what's going on there that they're being so um, adamant about, you know, that they had dinner somewhere else. They don't want any dessert or whatever it might be. And so the tipping point is where this is a helpful way of thinking about it. The tipping point is where the disordered eating behavior becomes compulsive. So that means, so I'll say it again, where the disordered eating behavior becomes compulsive. So when something is compulsive, the person doesn't feel like they have a choice about whether to do it or not. They feel like they have to do it. So you're listening for the imperative, yeah, the have to, the should, the must, the can't not of whatever that behavior is. So in terms of early warning signs, I would say, you know, when you're, you, you will pick it up. You don't need to necessarily watch out for it. But you will start to maybe notice that somebody's behaviors around food and eating or exercise start to change and that there will be this kind of driven quality to the disordered eating behavior, where if you try to get them to change something about it, you come up against a brick wall or you come up against defense or resistance. Yeah, because when something is compulsive, it's like there's something inside the person making them do it. It's mm -hmm. for them, it doesn't feel like there's a conscious thought involved in doing it. They feel like they have to do it. So that might be, I have to go for a run. It's raining outside. I've got a sore ankle because I twisted it yesterday, but I'm still going to go for my run. Or I don't eat anything after dinner. You know, I may be hungry because I missed food today and I can feel myself hungry or it's cold for whatever reason, um, but I'm not going to allow myself. And when mum tries to get me to have a snack, I have a row with her. So that's kind of, I suppose, early warning signs. You start to notice those changes in behavior. Alongside that, you'll, you might start to notice um, the person's mood changing. So they might start to have yeah. a low mood. They might start to isolate themselves. They might start to not socialize so much. They might start to be very perfectionist about um, their work or their study plan or um, their timetable. So it's those kind of changes that people will start to notice. Okay. 
Harriet, if I can translate what you're saying back to you and you could tell me if I'm right or wrong. But what it sounds to me like these people, young people in our case are doing is they're making rules for themselves and they're not giving themselves any flexibility with those rules. So those rules are like in their own head. I can't eat after this time. I have to run every day and it's or something. And it doesn't seem like there's even a something there. It's just that that's the rule and that's the way that it has to work. And as a parent watching a young person, you know, start to develop these rules and habits for themselves, And, and in any issue where we see something coming up for our kids, we can panic and say, no, you don't get up until you eat that. I'm going to I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm just going to make you eat it out of pure frustration um, and say, no, like this dinner is you're not to get up off the table until this dinner is gone. You need to eat. And it's coming from a place of, I suppose, fear and, and worry and all the rest. But how do we approach that conversation without a and, and again, sometimes I, I talk to parents and they almost are afraid that if they mention it, they make it a problem. They nearly manifest the problem by, yeah. you know, mentioning it or putting voice to it in the first place. Mm-hmm. So that's my big question for you today is how do we have these conversations? How do I identify it and come up with a solution without pushing against them or making a potential issue worse? So I think that um, you won't make a potential issue worse. If there's no issue there, then it won't. You're not you're not going to make them have an eating disorder by talking about your concern. So that's the first thing I would say. So not to worry about that. Um, Okay, so that conversation needs a bit of preparation. So you need to, I would say, if you can talk it through with somebody, um, people, you know, call our helpline all the time to talk this conversation through. So talk through or think out yourself, why am I worried? So what have I noticed? Be really clear and concrete about why you're worried. So, you know, I noticed that in the last week, you've only sat down for dinner with us once. I've noticed that you have, you know, exercise like this. I've noticed that you've gone all day without eating. If, you know, somebody has bulimia, maybe they're binging and purging or whatever. Um, So be really, don't be wishy-washy at all about why you're worried, okay? Then, so you're very clear on why you're worried. Then the next step is to think about when is a good time to have, to approach them. So you want to pick a time where you have time for the conversation, where, um, it's, you know, a relaxed time of day. So like over a meal time is not a good time. Often the car is a great place to have a conversation because you're not looking at the person. So you're side by side and you can often have very good conversations in the car. So you pick it an appropriate time. Then I would um, think about what do I want to achieve in my conversation. So what do I want to get out of it? And I would make sure that my expectations for that conversation are realistic. So if I decide, okay, I'm worried about them, I want them to agree to go to the doctor, to go to the GP, okay? That might be too big an expectation for one conversation. That might be two or three conversations. And the reason I say that is because a person with an eating disorder is highly sensitive, detail focused, and very um, very sensitive to success and failure and letting people down. 
So if you have the expectation that they will agree to go and talk to the GP and for whatever reason, they're not able to agree that, they're going to know that they're letting you down and that they're not doing what you want them to do and they're disappointing you. And that will compound their feeling of not being good enough. So rather than thinking of one conversation, think of it as opening up a dialogue of a couple of conversations. And if you could, I always say to parents, if you could achieve one thing out of that first conversation, what might it be? And to my mind, what it is, is you want to express your concern for them. If nothing else, that's what you want to do. So, so, so you think all that through. So then you have the conversation. So when you're having the conversation, the first thing is to be really concrete about why you're worried. So you say, I'm really worried about you because, and you have listed all your reasons, okay? But then you're not looking for the person to agree with you or to say, yeah, mom, you're right. And um, because, well, they won't be able to. And that's normal reaction. None of us like to agree when somebody thinks that there's something wrong with what we're doing. So our normal reaction is resistance. So we expect resistance. We expect pushback. We don't mind, don't, don't worry about it. Just accept it, but keep going. So, and the way you keep going is by not lingering on what they're doing. So what they're eating or not eating or what they're exercising or not exercising or any of that. Focus on how they're feeling. So you move from the doing part to the feeling part. And so you would say to them, you know, I'm really worried with you because all of these things, I've seen all of these things happen. And that is telling me that you're not okay, that you're stressed about something, that maybe you're upset about something. And what I really want you to know is that I've noticed this, I'm really worried about this, and I would like to have a conversation with you about it, where we think through, are you okay? Do you need some extra help? Um, should where Where could we go? Uh, who could we talk to? So you're collaborating with them. You want to come alongside them rather than pushing them or pulling the dragging them. You want to come alongside them and say, let's work this out together because that deals with the control aspect of the eating disorder. Okay. So, so, so to approach the conversation, that's one of the ways to try it. And all of that is written out on our website. There's an approaching someone page and it's all there written out very clearly for people to kind of think. It's because Harriet, that's the thing. That's the thing that you worry about so much in these situations that you do more damage at the beginning before you even get into how you potentially can support someone. Is it normal, Harriet, that, as you said, going back to your, what you're talking about originally is that disordered eating, we all go through phases. So it is normal to expect changes in potentially your child's diet and their approach to food. Is it just a situation of waiting in that in that time and going, okay, if it goes on over a period of weeks and months, then there's a problem? Or is there not really a straightforward answer to that? There isn't really a straightforward answer to that. Again, I would be listening for that compulsive aspect. So okay. where there's a lack of flexibility, where it's compulsive and where it's having a physical effect on them, that's I'd be worried about. Okay. Those things were happening. I'd be thinking, mm, and feels a bit, you know, filled with anxiety. There's something going on here. They don't seem happy. Um, we need to have a conversation. Okay. okay. 
And Harriet, is realistically the way that the structure is set up in Ireland, is the GP the first port of call? Yeah. Yeah. So the GP is usually the first port of call. So the G, I mean, the G, I suppose the com- the complexity with eating disorders is there is the physical part to the eating disorder. You know, that, that when, you know, a person, when a person isn't feeding themselves properly, it affects them physically. Mm-hmm. So we ha- we can't ignore that part. Like, obviously, they're not just about food and eating, but there is, but part of it is about food and eating and part of it is the physical part as well. So, um, yeah, so the GP is the first port of call. So on our website, we, ha- we have a new resource around what to expect when you go to your GP. And, you know, so what will the GP ask? What should the GP ask? What should the GP look for? What can you say? So thinking through what you might say to your GP. But the GP is often, okay. you know, within the community, a kind of wealth of information about um, about who who's there and who to go to. And, you know, especially if you go privately, you know, if you do a therapist or a dietitian, a GP is often has good information around that. But the GP also is the one who has to make the referral into the mental health services. So um, that's why you need to go to your GP as well, because they can make the referral in um, for the public nice. service. Now, making the referral into the public service doesn't mean that you have to take it up when the appointment comes, but it's really good to get that ball rolling um, because you just never know when you might need that team approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Harriet, is there, just before we let you go, and for anybody who has any more concerns, like body-wise, we've used your website so many times and referred your website over the years. It's an absolutely amazing and vital resource that everybody should know about. But is there anything that we haven't asked you that's like one of the questions you get asked the most that you just want to get out there and something that you'd like parents to know? Um, For parents? um. I suppose I think that um, the most important thing for a parent when supporting their person with an, their child with an eating disorder, and that could be an adult, is to, as hard as it is, to remember that when you align yourself with the person and become their ally, um, they are much more likely to move forward than you telling them what they should do. So I would always say, delete the word should from your vocabulary and try to take up, although it's very difficult, try to be that person to come alongside them and say, you know what? I don't necessarily understand this. Maybe you don't understand this, but let's try and figure this out together. And as a parent, you know, who is going to be there after they have recovered from their eating disorder. Um, They need to remember that they're the only ones, say, in a room with a clinician, they're the only ones who who know that person before they develop the eating disorder. So parents are a huge resource, are a huge support, um, and to remember, to remember how important they are. Yeah. 
That's brilliant advice. Harriet, thank you so much for your time and this podcast, the Shona Project podcast and BodyWise and people can find a wealth of information there. And I think, as you mentioned there, I think key is being armed with questions um, and you guys have helped people with that when they have to have those difficult conversations. I think that's amazing. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for asking me. Alison, that was such an informative chat. I learned so much from that. I don't know about you. Oh, I did, definitely. And as I said earlier, I'm I'm not super concerned just yet, but I'll be watching things when it comes to my own daughter and watching my language around things as well. So it was massively helpful. Did you notice that um, when she talked about bringing up any concerns with your child that she said, get in the car and say, I've noticed? And did you know that, like, Joanna Fortune mentioned that in our previous episodes as well. Exactly. I've noticed that. Um, cause it's and Dr. Not- Mario Kane is always saying, start with, I've noticed that. So yeah, they're on to something. Yeah, it's not accusatory. It's just, this is something I've noticed. Let's figure it out. So I love yeah. that. Um, I'm really looking forward to our next episode because we want to open the floor to our listeners and invite you all to send us in any questions that we have. We're going to get one of our experts on our next call. So anything that you're not sure about any any topics that you want to talk about any questions we can answer you can email them to podcast at shona.ie and we hope to get them answered for you as best that we can excellent i can't wait as well so that will be episode five of the shona project podcast so yeah thanks allison enjoy your thanks, dinner thanks sammy thanks <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs>